0: Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, while memorials in the South that extol the virtues of slavery get federal funding, a Black cultural and historical site here in Brooklyn struggles to survive.
1: I think everybody who is invested in being engaged, being civically engaged needs to know their history first, and so Weeksville is a great place to start.
0: And then the Brooklyn Film Festival is upon us again. We chat with a documentary filmmaker about the plight of a Guatemalan mother who seeks sanctuary in a New York City church.
2: Being a, an undocumented immigrant in the streets of uh, New York and uh, not knowing if she could be picked up by, by ICE, to making her case very public, but being uh, restrained and confined to these like four walls of a church, and so it becomes kind of a prison.
0: it was news to me that Brooklyn was home to one of the first free Black communities in America, and I host a local cable TV show that is largely about Brooklyn. Why is this not more widely known? Founded in the early 1800s by a dock worker named James Weeks, Weeksville was a place where freed Blacks could pursue their chosen profession, build schools and churches, and work towards the cause of abolition. Some of the houses from that community have been preserved, forming the centerpiece of the Weeksville Heritage Center, which found itself in dire straits earlier this year. They needed to raise $200,000 in operational funds. Otherwise, Weeksville was in danger of closing its doors in July. Thankfully, a crowdsourcing campaign was successful and the center will live to see another day to tell us about the challenging fundraising environment for black cultural institutions we're joined by executive director rob fields welcome rob
1: mackenzie nice to be here
0: so maybe tell us a little bit about weeksville we mentioned that it was one of the earliest free black communities in the u.s Um, tell us a little bit more about what we should know about it
1: so weeksville is this wonderful example of black self-determination black land ownership and home ownership and it was a space that uh, many black people Came to in the mid 1800s to try and build a life that would allow them to live up to this full ideal of American citizenship. They wanted to be civically engaged, but pursue the right to be educated, to own businesses, to just be their fully actualized selves. And they had to, you know, create the space to do it um, in what was a, uh, an emerging Brooklyn and. Unfortunately, there was a third of the population in Brooklyn by 1790 was African-American because they were enslaved. Those slaves became freed in 1827 when New York State abolished slavery. And so there was already a population of African-Americans here in Brooklyn. And it was in 1838 that James Weeks and a group of other African-American investors bought land from the Lefferts family and set about to create this community.
0: And at the height of Weeksville, what might it have looked like?
1: You know, it was a thriving community of 500 or so people. Um, Around 1850, that was at at its height. You know, there was a school, there was uh, an orphanage, there was a retirement home, uh, there was a baseball team, there were there were farmers, there were businessmen, there was a nationally known journalist, uh, Junius Morrell. Um, I, in the late 1870s, uh, the first black female doctor in New York State would come out of Weeksville, Dr. Susan Smith McKinney Stewart. Um... And by the close of the 1800s, there were three churches that were built in Weeksville, Berean, Bethel, and St. Philip's. And all three of those churches are still in existence today. So Sunday, pick a church. You can go to it. So the people in Weeksville were really about um, institution building, and they were also about— You know, civic engagement. So every people, all the people in Wilkesville were very much engaged in all the issues of the day, the abolition of slavery, the fight for equal suffrage for black folks and for women. And and it was just a, a, a thriving black community.
0: And there was at least one, maybe two newspapers, right?
1: There was at least one. Mm That was the Freedman's Torchlight um, that was started. It was both a teaching tool and an editorial organ. Because Weeksville was a stop on the Underground Railroad, um, the the paper served a dual function. It had things like ABCs and arithmetic and parts of speech and Bible verses. But it also had editorials uh, and news of the day.
0: Just last month, in early May, you put out a call, an emergency Mm -hmm. call, saying that unless you raise $200,000, Weeksville was in danger of closing in July. That's That's a really fast turnaround. So at what point did you realize that you had this potentially disastrous deficit?
1: Right. We were looking at it at the end of January, and we were just trying to figure out what to do. And so we went about really spending February and March and April, one, trying to figure out a plan, like, what are we going to do? And then as the plan was developing and we realized we would need to Use crowdfunding as part of the fundraising uh, effort. One of the things we spent time doing, and I spent a lot of time doing, was talking to uh, the broad range of the Weeksville community. So, you know, one of the things that was paramount was to make sure that people weren't blindsided by this to the extent it's possible. You know, there were a lot of key constituents. So it was the funding community, it was public officials, it was community boards, it was our churches, um, it was artists who had Weeksville. We wanted there to be uh, enough people out there who were given a heads up. Um, one, because maybe that would surface some other resources and connections that we could use. And two, we wanted people to be ready to say, "Yes, we knew about this, and we're supporting Weeksville, and we need you to do that." When inevitably the call would come, "Have you heard what's happening to Weeksville?" And so. We spent a lot of time doing that, refining the plan. I fully expected to still, at week four, still be grinding toward $200,000 because I've done a few crowdfunding campaigns in the past. I have seen people do them, and it's a daily job. It is nothing about this is given. I had assumed that maybe there's a community out there, given that Weeksville has a 50-year history, but I didn't know that the response would be that we would get to our first goal of $200,000 in six days.
0: Wow, that's amazing. I
1: did not know that we would get to $250,000 in eight days. I did not expect that there would be 4,000 donors from seven countries who contributed an average of $65 to help save Weeksville. And what this money does right now is it is not a silver bullet. What it does is it gets gives us time to do the critical planning that we need to understand, how do we avoid ever being in this situation again? I think everyone except maybe the Studio Museum is really struggling in some way, shape or form. This is a more normal situation than people know because of the disparity in funding. I mean, there was a University of Maryland, DeVos Institute report um, a few years back that just showed that you know on average, you know black and brown cultural institutions have smaller boards. They have smaller pools of donors who give less. they get less money from the funding community. So Weeksville, tucked away in central Brooklyn, is certainly feeling that. you know it is we're also part of this mega trends of you know the the lack of investment in, arts education in schools means you also create less patrons, less future patrons, because people don't grow up appreciating art and everybody kind of can't stand history and oh my god, it's this boring recitation of dates. But, you know, making part of the work Much of the work we do at Weeksville is about making this history relevant and resonant for for contemporary audiences because of the outpouring of support both from individuals and I'm happy to say from, you know, the Brooklyn cultural community, cultural institution community, from our elected officials, everyone was coming together to try to, you know, do what they can and that is try to help get us admitted as a permanent line. In the city budget,
0: right? Because you could be, you could receive a special designation mm-hmm. uh, that other cultural and historical sites in the city have, and that that yeah. makes you eligible for different types of funding. Is that right?
1: That is correct. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that we are trying to get and have been trying to get for a decade is this designation as a cultural, as a member of the cultural institutions group, which is a group of funders, a uh, group of um, institutions that are just. Permanently in the city of New York budget.
0: Bam, Brooklyn Museum, the Aquarium. Yes,
1: you know, and the list goes on Lincoln Center, Carnegie Hall, Queens Museum. I mean, organizations like that. And there is no Brooklyn organization that is a black Brooklyn cultural institution that is part of that group.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm just so shocked at the. I shouldn't be shocked, but I am shocked at the white supremacy that you see when it comes to the funding of cultural institutions. Um, There was an investigation done by Type Investigations, which I believe is part of the nation, and they looked into Beauvoir, which is Jefferson Davis's um, home estate, where there's a presidential library. They call it a presidential library. And um, they received 21... $28.1 $28.1 million in federal, state, and wow. local funding. Over 10 years, I believe. Um, and this investigation unit went down and you know did the whole tour, and they were told by somebody who was leading a tour group, um, I want to tell them the honest truth that slavery was good and bad. Uh, And that while there were some, quote, hateful slave owners, it was good for the people that didn't know how to take care of themselves and they needed a job. And you had good slave owners like Jefferson Davis who took care of his slaves and treated them like family. He loved them. So that cultural and historical site has received, I'll say it again, $28.1 million in federal, state, and local funding. And it seems shocking to me Mm -hmm. uh, that you can't Uh, raise the money that you need to have Weeksville funded in perpetuity.
1: Right, right. Weeksville has been uh, one of the best kept secrets in Brooklyn. Part of this campaign has not just been about raising the money. And, you know, again, I want to thank everyone who has contributed and shared and helped us get to this goal. But it's also been about raising the awareness of Weeksville and making sure that, People even here in the borough of Brooklyn know about this wonderful historic site that is such uh, an integral part of black Brooklyn history, of New York City history, and of American history. And so as we raise the profile of Weeksville, I think funding is going to follow. I think we have a spotlight right now. I am really encouraged, as I said, about the support we're seeing bubbling up from the city the will is there and i believe that things are changing for weeksville i do think that i don't want it lost on people that we do need to have a larger conversation about diversity and equity and funding and making sure that other black and brown organizations are also getting more of their taxpayer dollars that they need to operate and so it's a it is a recurring thing in terms of a combination of lack of individual support. So we can do some work around training and developing a broader funding base, particularly in our communities. But we also need the help of the structures that are already in place to help fund these organizations that are doing amazing work in their communities and for their communities by centering their culture and their history and the lives of the people for whom they serve. And they need to get the funding to continue to operate. It's just really that simple. In a city of so much wealth, and a city that spends almost as much as the federal government on culture, there's got to be a better way to divvy up that money. Right.
0: We just hosted a brick town hall here mm-hmm. on the topic of reparations, a mm-hmm. hot button issue. And you know, there's much discussion about different forms that reparations might take. And somebody mentioned, why aren't we having cultural institutions or uh, historical institutions that preserve the legacy of African Americans in this country why aren't we channeling money to that Mm -hmm. as part of some sort of way to think about reparations um, instead of funding uh, white supremacist cultural organizations in the South? So make the pitch to people in Brooklyn, maybe some of these two-plus million people in Brooklyn who haven't come out to Mm -hmm. Weeksville, aside from it'll make you feel good and it's the right thing to support a cool cultural institution in your borough, why should people come visit Weeksville and what will they find there?
1: I think that the, the key thing is that in a, in a country, particularly at this moment in our history, where things feel so polarized, it is so important for Brooklyn, Brooklynites, as well as people from New York City and the world, to know the full story of American history. And Weeksville is a place where you can see a more nuanced, well-rounded, uh, blank-filled in version of history. It brings to relief, you know, the reasons that Weeksville was founded is a, is a commentary and and a, and a under, way to understand what was going on in American history, and as we are dealing with a more complex world, it is important to have the facts. It's important to know that, you know, it was not just one group of people who made America what it was. It was regular working black people who helped to shape the story of Brooklyn and New York City and ultimately of, of, as a model for the country. So I, I think everybody who is invested in being engaged, being civically engaged, needs to know their history first. And so Weeksville is a great place to start.
0: Rob Fields, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You know that scene in The Hunchback of Notre Dame where Quasimodo rescues Esmeralda and carries her into the church calling for sanctuary? That's a real thing. Even in countries with alleged separation of church and state, law enforcement is often reluctant to arrest people who seek sanctuary in houses of worship. Tragically, this crucial plot point from a novel written in 1831 is super relevant today for dozens of undocumented immigrants. One such person is a Guatemalan mother of three U.S.-born children who, in order to keep her family together, sought protection from ice in a New York City church. Her story is the subject of a new documentary called Sanctuary, which will be screening at the 22nd Brooklyn Film Festival currently underway. We're happy this brings the festival's founder, Marco Ursino to the studio to talk about some of this year's themes. Welcome to M12BK. And we also have the director of Sanctuary, Andrea Cordoba, thank you for joining us. And thank
2: you for having us.
0: So maybe I'll start with you. Can you tell us a little bit more about the film? How did you find the subject, and what was it like filming with this mother?
2: Uh, Yeah, definitely. So uh, Sanctuary was my thesis project for my master's in documentary film. And I'm originally from Mexico. And when uh, President Trump uh, got elected, I was finding stories, uh, immigrant stories in New York City. And so I started filming with the new Sanctuary uh, Coalition in New York. And... I heard about this case, Amanda, and she, they told me about it the day she was going to make public her case, and she moved out of Long Island and into the church in Washington Heights. And so I went there, and I started filming with her, and it became a two-year-long uh, project. And so uh, Amanda was had been in New York for 12 years, and under President Trump's administration, they asked her to leave. They told her to buy a one-way ticket back to Guatemala and leave her uh, with or... Uh, without her three U.S. born children. So she uh, sought help from this organization and they offered her sanctuary in this uh, Washington Heights church. So on August uh, 17th of 2017, she went into this church uh, without knowing when she would be able to walk out again. And uh, she was in there for uh, a little over a year without being able to step outside.
0: And were her children living with her in the church?
2: Yeah, they were. So she has three uh, young uh, American citizens uh, children. Uh, the youngest one was two when they moved into the church, and the oldest one was uh, nine. And they lived with with them with the their mother in the church in a tiny space. And so the children were able to come and go, um, visit their father,
0: go to school. But Amanda was confined to the four walls of this church in Washington Heights.
2: Exactly. So what I tried to do in the film is uh, show these, uh, how this sanctuary, the, the the space that they provided for her and the security from deportation kind of becomes her prison and like she went from one agony of being a, an undocumented immigrant in the streets of uh, New York and uh, not knowing if she could be picked up by by ICE to making her pace like her case very public uh, but being uh, restrained and confined to these like four walls of a church and so it becomes kind of a prison and so it is a sanctuary like she she was not um, detained or deported or sent back to Guatemala but she is now forced to live inside of a uh, inside of this uh, church.
0: Right, and Marco, why did you decide to program this film?
3: Because uh, issues like that, uh, like this, are overlooked. Uh, And because we live in a period that is particularly critical, we just want a a place uh, where intelligent people can gather. The gathering is the theme of this year's festival and confront each other. And uh, although it lasts only for 10 days, uh, I hope in 10 days we can achieve something. Um, The more uh, we will be able to share, and the more we will be able to be active after the festival to make a difference.
0: So New York is, of course, a sanctuary city, and we've been hearing a lot about sanctuary cities and sanctuary states uh, post-election of Donald Trump. But maybe, Andrea, can you explain to me a little bit about the limitations of being a sanctuary city and why there is still a need for places of private sanctuary like this church?
2: There's a lot of uh, different movements in the city that are going on, and one of them is uh, the, this idea of uh, sanctuary neighborhoods. And so it's a network of, of people that are there to to support each other and to like offer uh, s- uh, sanctuary spaces or safe spaces for uh, the undocumented Members of our community that are going through this like fear, and I think for the church specifically, uh, it's it's like as you mentioned, they the ICE considers sanctuary a sensitive location, and so they don't go in and and do arrests. But actually, that's under uh, the sensitive uh, location premise that ICE follows, and that includes. Uh, hospitals, courts, schools, and uh, places of worship. And we've seen uh, the government uh, going into schools, courts, uh, and hospitals, and for some reason, churches are the only ones that are still kind of, uh, they still respect that. So it's important to have these spaces. And right, maybe that would be a good time to play a clip from the film. Yeah, definitely. Amanda
3: is not hiding. Amanda has taken sanctuary and is seeking the justice that has been denied. Amanda
2: is going to be sent back to a country she left 14 years ago with three children who are U.S. citizens. What about their rights to have a mother? What about their rights to maintain a united family? We're not thinking about those rights.
3: Some of you that, I don't know why they always ask me about the legality of this. <laughs> uh, let me tell you something, everything Hitler did was legal. And during slavery, everything what happened in this country was legal. Something can be legal, but immoral. That's what we bring here. We are gonna change, we are gonna challenge immorality.
0: Andre, what are we seeing in this scene here?
2: Uh, so, this specific clip from the film is uh, a press conference that the leaders of the protest movement held the day that they announced uh, that Amanda was taking sanctuary. So it's they go down to the federal uh, Plaza building and and submit the, the petition for Amanda to, to reopen her case and because she never had a day in court. So she can't leave the church to submit the paperwork herself because she would be arrested. So the priest Juan Carlos Ruiz, Assemblywoman Carmen de la Rosa, and uh, priest uh, Luis Barrios uh, give this, this conference and, and speak for her.
0: Marco, you mentioned the theme of this year is gathering. Um, what are some of the other issues, aside from immigration, that the films that you've programmed grapple with?
3: There is also a number of fun films. I mean, (laughs) it's not all. um, Not uh, just a downer (laughs) of the Film Festival. No, absolutely not. This year we have tried to empower women. Women as one aspect of society, you know, like uh, there are many others that are persecuted. Uh, And the problem that Andrea brought up uh, is not just a U.S. problem is the world that is really moving right and is the is the world that is not respecting uh, people that are moving from their country to you know find a better uh, life for themselves uh, this is unfortunately it, it's happening climate is changing populations are moving and that's why the, the right wing takes uh, over because they promise people safety, security from these bad people. They are coming and invading us. So it's not really a US problem. And and the sanctuary is is a beautiful idea, but I think it's just a a matter of time because eventually it it will be all the same unless, unless we do something about it. We wanted this year's festival to feel like a movement is about uh, taking a position, again, also in a fun way.
0: Uh. Right, right, a fun but firm position. Correct. <laughs> right. So uh, this film takes place mostly in Washington Heights, right? Correct. Um, but this is a nationwide phenomenon. I read that over 500 undocumented immigrants have sought sanctuary in churches, uh, I believe, as of 2018. Do you know if anybody, since this is a Brooklyn-specific festival and we are a Brooklyn show, do you know if anybody has sought sanctuary in Brooklyn specifically?
2: Um, no, I don't think so, and not publicly at least. I think uh, there's the difference between seeking public and and private sanctuary, which is a very uh, important distinction, because I think back in 2017, the idea was the more media, the better it's going to be. And I think there's been kind of a change in that, because... 47 people took public sanctuary in 2017, and out of those 47 people, only nine got kind of like any sort of like outcome out of any response from the government, basically. Uh, so I think there has been this change, and there's a lot of people like, that still need to seek sanctuary, but they're doing so in, in, a, in a private way. Maybe we can talk about the specifics of the festival.
3: Uh, the festival is international. And therefore, uh, we were able to put together 133 films uh, from 35 countries. Uh, we selected the films out of 2,659 submissions from 110 countries, which is a record. And uh, we are going to be using seven Brooklyn venues, mostly in the north side of Brooklyn. Um, in five uh, brooklyn neighborhoods so dumbo williamsburg greenpoint uh, uh, bushwick uh, in uh, downtown brooklyn with the alamo theater Uh, the main two theaters are white hotel in williamsburg and windmill studios in greenpoint Uh, those are the two venues that play all the films Um, we have uh, other five venues that will you know Play movies as well,
0: and it opens on May 31st and runs May for May 31st, days. Uh,
3: ten days to, through June 9. Uh, on June 9, there is going to be an award ceremony. We're going to give uh, award and prizes, and ninety uh, percent of the filmmakers travel with their film, so it's not uh, just an opportunity to see a good movie, but also to meet the people behind the movies. Uh, so I strongly recommend it.
0: And if people
2: want to see Sanctuary, when is that film? They should come check it out. It's going to be playing uh, Saturday, uh, June 8th. And that's the world premiere? That's the world premiere. And then it's going to have its second screening uh, the following day, Sunday 9th, at the Windmill Studios.
0: Great. Marco, Andrea, thank you so much for joining us. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you for having us. And that's the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to show it is to visit Weeksville. Or you could review 112BK on iTunes. Also, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. 112BK well, is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hagaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Lee, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham.